This case concerns itself with the conviction of a defendant. Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted. We'll hear arguments next in Batson against Kentucky. Welcome to another episode of Bears, The Bar and Beyond, the Baylor Pre-Law Podcast. And this week, we have a very special guest, Darren Burton. Darren uh, is a criminal law specialist, and criminal law, I think, is an area of practice that is interesting to a, to a lot of students. So today with Darren, we're going to explore his own career, but also the ins and outs of criminal law practice. Darren, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate you calling me very special. <laughs> Darren, tell us about your, your undergraduate experience. So you started out here in Texas in Nagadoshes at uh, Stephen F. Austin. That's correct. Uh, uh, but then went on to LSU. That's correct. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do the first couple of years and actually took a philosophy class on accident and fell in love with it. And the school I was at, Stephen F. Austin, didn't have a major in philosophy. So uh Decided to transfer to LSU because that particular department had an emphasis in philosophy of religion, and that's where I saw myself uh, eventually doing a career track in, so ended up there. What, uh, what about philosophy do you think was helpful in terms of your legal practice? Uh, everything, actually, uh, from ethics to epistemology uh, to logic, uh, to ontology, uh, pretty much all of it was, uh, I use philosophy and I tell people this all the time. I don't know that they believe me, uh, but I use some form of philosophy, philosophical training that I had practically every single day, uh, in my practice, uh, whether it be deciphering problems, looking at, you know, parsing words, uh, looking at somebody's mental state that's required, uh, you know, for the commission of a crime, uh, all of that, what a person knew and how they knew it, all those sorts of things. They all come into play. Was, was law a career that was kind of in the back of your mind or were you fairly committed to being a, a full-time philosopher? I was fairly committed to, uh, finishing a PhD in philosophy. And to that end, I actually ended up in grad school at Duke University uh, and finished a master's there in theological studies through their divinity school. And I was going to use that to uh, jumpstart into a good PhD program, but sort of ran out of gas (laughs) (laughs) uh, in that particular area. And honestly, uh, went to law school by default, or just, I I say by default, I just, I didn't have anything else to do. Uh, So, uh, had never really intended on being a lawyer. Uh, just, you know, that was something else to do. And, and then I know, I know it's odd to say, well, I was burned out academically. So let me go do three more years. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> not a place you go to relax. No, it's not. But I just didn't have 400 pages of a dissertation in me at the time. Uh, so, I mean, the grad school helped prepare me as well. Did you have a sense of the kind of law that you might practice or did you figure you just go to law school and, and figure it out? I'd just go to law school and figure it out to see what's up. Yeah. Uh, that sort of deal. Uh, there was, I didn't grow up around a bunch of lawyers. Uh, I will say this. I had a really, really good friend in high school. Uh, her dad uh, was a lawyer and I really looked up to him an awful lot. Uh, but that was really the only person that I knew in the legal field growing up. 
uh, you know, you hear stories about other lawyers around the communities, but I didn't know. I didn't hang out with them. My families didn't hang out with them. Yeah. So I had no goal whatsoever in terms of what I, what type of law I wanted to do. What was the, the biggest difference between a, a master's program and your JD? Did you, did you notice a distinct difference? Was one more demanding in different ways to the other? I don't know that one was more demanding in different ways. The workloads were just as intense in their own unique way. Uh, for example, in grad school, it a two or 300 page reading assignment a night wasn't all that unusual. Mm. You know, if you took all the classes, all the seminars and added them together, you'd have three, like I say, anywhere from two to 400 pages. And so I get to law school and you've got 12, 15 pages a night. And I'm like, hey, this looks a whole lot easier. Well, it's, <laughs> it's not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a very different type of reading and a very different type of reasoning. And I had an extraordinarily hard time adjusting my writing style uh, that I had learned in grad school to what they wanted in law school. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I think one of the things I talk to students about is the fact that the vast majority of what a lawyer does is involves reading and writing. Yes. And, and we talk about, you know, good lawyers having to be very good at reading and writing, which sounds very simplistic when you put it that way, but it's, there's a lot more to it. Can you tell us a little bit about how your writing style had to differ? Uh, in terms of writing style, uh, in grad school, you were taught to write narrative, uh, especially in a philosophical slash theological uh, curricula. Uh, you know, there's not, there's not a whole lot of the type of textual analysis that you do in law school uh, that's really applicable to grad school. So what I'd learned through all the, the grad school, I had to unlearn in law school <laughs> simply because the writing is much more succinct, uh, much more detailed. Uh, and, but you have to really sort of say what you got to say and, and in and out uh, as opposed to four or five paragraphs of, you know, what William James thought on, you know, the varieties of religious experience, you know, <laughs> the first two pages or something like that. Uh, so uh, you, you have to cram a whole lot of facts and analysis in a very, very short, succinct uh, writing, uh, basically enough to get the judge's attention or whoever it is, his attention and sway them over to your side. And it looks very elementary at first. And I fought it because I was a Duke grad and I knew better than these people, you know. Well, I didn't. Uh, so I had to unlearn a lot of, uh, they aren't bad habits, just different habits uh, in terms of reading and writing and uh, uh, relearn what they wanted out of my specific field. What You know, to give you an example of drawing out of philosophy and in the law, what Wittgenstein would call the grammar, <laughs> so to speak. And he doesn't mean, you know, technical grammar like you, you were taught in English or uh, you know, whatever language class it was. This is a very philosophical definition of grammar, the way the world works in the law, so to speak. What? So, yeah, uh, it, was a, it was a difficult transition for me. Uh, 
but one that I look back now and, and you know, it would have been a whole lot easier if I'd have just sort of stopped fighting it right at first. <laughs> just done what they told me. When when you finished law school, did you have a clear sense of the kind of practice area that you wanted to go into? or you? I just wanted to do a small town general practice. Did you have uh, a sense of whether you wanted to be in court a lot or was that something you were you could take or leave? Uh, I don't think at first I wanted to be in court a whole lot, but then I found out I was actually, I was told I was actually pretty good at it. And, uh, one of the things I do like about the law is the camaraderie, Hmm. uh, that you have within the profession. And so it was always fun for me to go down to a little small County courthouse and, uh, you know, mess around with other lawyers, shake hands, press the flesh and tell a joke. And, uh, trade war stories and sit in the judge's chambers and shoot the bull and all that sort of stuff was an awful lot of fun for me. And to this day, that's why I still enjoy going down to the courthouse as much as anything else. It's just to see, you know, friends over time and tell your stories. Well, it's a unique profession in that sense in that there are also people that you're going to be in an adversarial situation with in the sense that your clients have differing uh, interests and your job is to represent your client's interests to the best of your ability. So it's, I think for a lot of young or aspiring lawyers, it's, it takes a little bit of time to get used to the fact that when, when the whistle blows and time starts, you are, you know, doing the very, very best for your client, which sometimes means having fairly extensive arguments with people on the other side. But then when that case is over or the weekend rolls around that, that collegiate kind of atmosphere kicks in and, and you realize that even though you're up against someone acting for the other side, you're still professionals. That's correct. It's the distinction between your adversary and your enemy. Yeah. Other lawyers are not your enemy. And if you treat them as an enemy, and and I know some lawyers that do this, they cannot operate in their world without having the other side be the enemy of everything good and right that they stand for. But at the same time, if you do that, you're going to eventually lose your objectivity yeah, and lose the ability to counsel the client uh, truthfully, so to speak, uh, with, with the situation that they're facing and what they're up against. Uh, and it's not it's intentional. It just turns into bad advice. It becomes personal. Uh, and But, yeah, I mean, there's all stories <laughs> of uh, – and, and I, I had a very good friend of mine uh, when I first started practicing, he and I had about four or five trials together against one. And I say together, and that's the thing. It, we were together, but we were against one another. And when it was over, we'd go out in the hall and sit, kind of elbow each other in the ribs. Oh, we put on a show then, didn't we? Yeah, let's, you know. <laughs> well, I think, too, people, people forget, even though, you know, numerically there are a lot of lawyers in the country, in, within each kind of little county or within each city, it's still a small enough profession that people get to know each other. And the reality is there are going to be days where you need someone to cut you some slack, maybe an extension to file a document. And uh, there will be times where they're going to ask you to do the same for them. And and if you build that reputation as being someone who's not cooperative or particularly uneasy to to work with, and that time may roll around and and you don't get the, the leniency or the assistance you'd hope for. That is absolutely 100% correct. Building that sort of collegiality within the local bar itself 
and having the ability to pick up the phone and say, hey, something's come up. I need an extra week or can you get me this or whatnot uh, goes a long, long way in making your life easier and making the client's situation a whole lot better than what it would be because, man, you hit, you hit the nail on the head. If you're develop a reputation as uncooperative or uh, somewhat of a horse's ass, <laughs> uh, then uh, you're going to be papered to death. Yeah. Uh, there is nothing. I found it very, very important to be able to be uh, taken on my word that my handshake was good enough. Uh, now, there were times when uh, I had to get something in writing from another lawyer just to cover my butt, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they understood why. And I'd tell them, it's not that I don't trust you or anything like that. I've just got this particular situation where I need to cover. Uh, you know, yeah, sure. No problem. Mm-hmm. It's when that other lawyer says, no, I'm going to we're going to get this in writing that it's the problem. Yeah. Uh, because you haven't done, you're doing all your clients a disservice if you can't have the type of collegiality uh, and, frankly, be a person of your word uh, within a particular small lawyer community. Well, I think, I think too, that's something we probably don't talk enough about, um, especially with aspiring lawyers, is integrity is not an option. You must have it because not only are you going to be making representations to your colleagues, but if you get caught out being deceptive or even massaging the truth with the court, you are in real trouble. You're you're in instant trouble at that point. But with most medium, the small town, or even somewhat large bars uh, around the state, if uh, you are deceptive towards one other lawyer within that community at three o'clock in the afternoon, by five o'clock, everybody else knows about it. And they'll put you on the whole bar will put you on. I heard what you did to old Tom Davis over there. Uh, So, you know, we're going to have to change the way we do business with you over here. Yeah. Uh, They will protect and serve one another uh, and maintain uh, that collegiality within the bar. you know, you'll you'll have to work extra hard to get back in everybody's good graces. You, you've I mean, got to be a quip on tap because it's essentially a self-regulated profession. Very and much if, so. And, and if they don't regulate people within it, then someone else will. That's exactly right. And it could, if it comes from the bench, then you're persona non grata. And I, I know some lawyers that aren't allowed to back into certain courts uh, because of the way they behave. Now, it may have been a one-off, but you don't get a one-off. Yeah. You know, uh, only under particular special circumstances uh, are you sort of allowed back in the court's good graces. Uh, it's, it's, it's strict. It's a lot stricter than what I thought because I'm a pretty easygoing guy. It makes things a whole lot easier. I feel bad for other lawyers who uh, uh, find themselves in those particular situations. Yeah. Well, let's let's jump from uh, law school into the first few years of your uh, practice of the law. What what did you start out doing? Uh, <laughs> I got on with the personal injury firm back in Nacogdoches, and that didn't last too long, uh, simply because the firm folded for 
reasons that were outside my control, uh, personal reasons from the founder. Uh, so at that point, I just started taking court-appointed cases, criminal law cases. Uh, we had found out that my wife was pregnant with our oldest child uh, one week after I was let go. Wow. After the fern folded. So uh, I had to jump on my horse. <laughs> and so I went down to the courthouse and told the judges, give me every court-appointed case that you possibly can. And it wasn't a whole lot of money by any stretch of the imagination, but it was keeping me busy and it was getting my name out there, uh, sort of paying my dues. Was it difficult to jump from civil or from personal injury to, to criminal law? No, uh, there's, there's a commonality in litigation uh, that you're sort of looking at the same things and, the, and the, the outline is the same, so to speak. The procedure's a little different. You know, you're looking at different aspects of things, but it wasn't all that difficult. Uh, what I missed more than anything else in my early days is having a mentor. Yeah. Uh, I think that is absolutely essential to being a good lawyer is finding yourself in the back pocket of some old salt, yeah. uh, you know, who's, who's, uh, who's been around. Yeah. They've yeah. taken bullets. They've fired bullets. Yeah. Uh, you know, they've, they've taken hits and they've, uh, had glory days, uh, and they'll 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 show you around. And that's true whether it be a big city or a uh, a, a small venue, small county. Uh, it is absolute. I'm a big Aristotelian, and as you are well aware, Aristotle was very big on the mentor-apprentice relationship. And so it's it's if you really want to learn how to be a good lawyer, law school will get you through the bar exam. But having a good mentor and being a good apprentice uh, will teach you lawyer. And I think it's important to remember that that doesn't change. Like, I mean, no. I know I've, I've still got mentors that I've had for 10, 15 years, and I'm sure you do as well, that you can go to for professional advice and personal advice. And, you yep. know, it's, it, it really is beneficial to your own personal and professional development to, to find a, a good mentor. Very much so. Absolutely. What was it like to start your own practice? Because I think that's something that is appealing to a lot of people, but it's definitely not as easy as just hanging a shingle and, and off you go. No, and that's where I missed the mentor part as much as anything else. I had no idea what was involved with it. Because one thing they don't teach you in law school is how to run a business. Yeah. And uh, I had no clue how to run and start a business. Uh, you know, that's an extra 20, 20 hours a week on top of your uh, law stuff, uh, much less, you know, getting financing, insurance, all the applicable rules from the bar about what lawyers uh, should and shouldn't be doing and advertising and trust funds and all these sorts of, you know, back of the bookcase rules that are, that are applied to you that you just don't have a clue about because you're sitting there just, look, all I want to do is practice law. <laughs> And uh, that's that was a large portion of it. So it was it was difficult. Uh, I actually borrowed a very insignificant amount of money from my parents uh, to start my office, and I thought it was it'd be a sufficient amount of capital. And it turned out to be about a quarter of what I needed to get off of the ground. And uh, fortunately, I had a. Uh, had enough time to develop the types of relationships within that bar community 
that we were just talking about of collegiality and stuff where I had one of the older lawyers in that town send me what we call an orphan case. It had been looked at by uh, seven other law firms and rejected it. Uh, but they were his clients. He was probating the will. And uh, they weren't satisfied with the answers they were getting. And I was hungry. I was real hungry, <laughs> literally and figuratively. And uh, they sent, he sent the family over, and we got to looking at it. And uh, I decided to go forward on the case with another lawyer in town who I eventually partnered with. Uh, but he and I ended up settling that case for $3.4 million. So uh, that sort of got me off the ground. It was a nursing home death case. Uh, and we were able to put it together. But... You know, like I say, seven other law firms had looked at it, and I think we were just a little hungrier and started digging around a little more. And it was yeah. a good lesson on how to really work a case, that's for sure, and the politics that go behind stuff like that. So a lot of fun. Well, tell us how you went from doing civil litigation and then doing a little bit of court-appointed work, running your own firm, to then ultimately becoming an assistant, an assistant district attorney. That is a long highway, bro. <laughs> uh, about the time we got really kicked off on our personal injury practice, uh, tort reform kicked in. Can you just explain for that for our undergrads what 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 is tort reform and and why does it matter? Tort law is what is commonly called personal injury law, and it used to be under the old law that. Uh, you had there's there's two parts to every case there's liability and there's damages so you first you had to prove somebody was negligent and then you had to prove that because of their negligence your client was damaged and there there used to not be any caps on those things uh and by caps i mean um an upper threshold where any money that was awarded uh, there was the state put in effect with tort reform that no matter what the damage is or whatnot, that a person was only eligible for, and I don't remember the exact number, but I've seen it because it's been years, uh, $250,000 in damages. So, for example, if, uh, you know, an 18 wheeler driver is drunk or high on Adderall and hadn't slept in 38 hours doing 97 miles an hour down some little neighborhood road and runs over your kid, uh, then the state of Texas determined that the value of that child's life was $250,000. Regardless of the facts or the circumstances or the egregiousness of the behavior, because they didn't have any potential lost income or anything like that that would have fell outside of that cap exception. And, and, and the same would be said if, you you know, your doctor was high on cocaine and goes into... Operating on you. And leaves a pair of scissors inside or something. Exactly right. Uh, cut your head off or something like that, uh, whether it be med mile or, or anything along those lines. And that's where it first came down. I'm glad you reminded me of that. It was medical malpractice. And and just just for our listeners, MADMEL is medical malpractice. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it would cost us. We in, in some of your undergrads have probably seen some of these commercials or advertisements. You don't owe us anything unless you recover. 
And what that is, is the law firm, because these cases are so expensive to develop, that the lawyer and the law firm bears all the risk and financial risk in the case. Uh, so, for example, the nursing home case would cost us approximately an $80,000 average investment. And if somebody's in a nursing home and they, because of the nursing home's negligence or, you know, we, there, there was one particular case, I think, not I think, I know, where uh, one of the residents uh, died from fire ants. She was literally stung to death. Uh, because there's a giant ant pile in the corner, of the, despite innumerable warnings that we have ants in the room and there's the pile over there. They didn't do anything about it. Good grief. Yeah. So somebody's in a nursing home. They're not going to have that lost income, that potential lost income or anything like that. All you have is the uh, pain and suffering of that particular person uh, and the loss of consortium claim. And all of those were capped. So that was $80,000 out of our pocket. Well, and like anything, we want our investment back first. This is outside of our fees. So we want that $80,000 first. That leaves $170,000. Well, we've got four kids uh, of the decedent, you know, moms in the nursing home, let's say. So all said and done, uh, it gives... Through an, lawsuits are extraordinarily stressful for everybody involved. The family, they've got to relive it, the whole thing. And the bottom line is we made a, a determination that it just wasn't worth the stress uh, to continue to put, you know, families. They couldn't do what they wanted to do, which was change that behavior mm. because those corporations were capped. <clears throat> so their risk analysis, these corporations always had, X amount of money set aside for this, and then they just carry on business the way they always did uh, because it was an acceptable loss, like the four Pinto stuff. Um, so, you know, they put maybe $30,000 in the pocket. We're cutting our fees, we're risking everything. Uh, and that was the goal of tort reform was to limit the, the number of these types of lawsuits that were being filed. And it wasn't to protect the nursing homes or doctors, it was to that whole thing was pushed forward by the insurance lobby. It was to minimize insurance risk in terms of uh, lawsuits. So, uh, excuse me, my phone is ringing. Um, so, uh, I made a, we had probably sunk close to $250,000 of our own money developing personal injury practice. And uh, all of a sudden, it was worse. So uh, that was an awful lot of stress on us, the family, everything. Uh, so uh, I didn't have the best coping skills at that particular time uh, and ended up uh, with some pretty significant health problems. Uh, got out of the practice of law for a little while. Uh, and eventually made it back uh, into being an assistant district attorney uh, when I when I was ready to get back into law. Was it was it hard having done criminal defense work in the past to to see yourself on the other side? Uh, yeah, because not from a legal standpoint, no. From a personal standpoint, kind of. 
Yeah. Uh, simply because I'm not so philosophically inclined as to <laughs> <laughs> always want to uh, always trust the state, so to speak. Uh, and here I am representing the state. Uh, and it was fine, though. I mean, uh, I mean, the courtroom's a courtroom, you know. So it was getting back to that banter and uh, all of those uh, things that I really like about being a lawyer, as well as getting to try cases again. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's how I got back. That's how I got back into law and specifically criminal law. What is what does it look like in a on a average day to be uh, in a DA's office? Are you because I think some people have a distorted view of what it means to be a DA in the sense that you're not you know doing surveillance yourself and you're not you're you're working with law enforcement to gather that evidence. Can you just give us a little bit of a sense of what a, an average day kind of looks like and and what a DA's role is? Yeah, it's not like what you see on TV for sure. It's actually kind of uh, the average day is somewhat. Um, paper intensive. There is a lot of meeting with law enforcement. Hey, I've got this. Hey, I've got that. Uh, okay, well, I need a little more. Can you go back and find this and find that? Um, sometimes law enforcement is, and you got to weed through which ones are the, the good ones that give you good cases and the ones that uh, are missing stuff. So you spend a lot of time reviewing cases. Uh, on, and deciding whether or not to file them, uh, whether or not it's worth pursuing. Uh, you have the discretion to do that as a prosecutor. So I, I did. There's some offices that have somebody on board specifically there to screen cases. In my particular office, we were each allowed to screen our own cases. Uh, so, yeah, I would, I'd spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, every other day you were in court. Uh, doing a docket call, uh, trying to reach resolutions. And if you couldn't reach a resolution or a plea bargain agreement, you'd set them for trial and then wait for your trial to come up. And, uh, but it was uh, the good, the interesting part about it is that you see everything. Yeah. Uh, you see behaviors that are funny uh, and tragic. Yeah. Uh, intentional and accidental and all points in between uh but it's it's never boring i'll tell you that simply because of that part yeah uh, <laughs> you sitting there you know hey this guy did what <laughs> <laughs> well i think too it's easy to forget that both prosecutors and defense attorneys are human beings Sure. You know, and it's it's not a case of just taking every case that walks in the door and trying to prosecute it to the nth degree each and every time. No, and that's not what a prosecutor's oath is. A prosecutor's oath is to do justice. Hmm. Uh, now, a lot of people define that very differently uh, because that's a very esoteric term. But, um, I... You know, prosecuting cases affects everybody's lives. If somebody goes to prison, it's not just that person being punished. It's the family, it's the kids, it's the mom, it's the dad. It's and social. It's even, it's even the time when they get out of prison. Right. If once they've done their time, that, that's going to be with them. <coughs> no question. And uh, pardon me for coughing. Um, you know, it's social services who now have to get involved because somebody's out of the house and, you know, maybe they qualify now for chips or some sort of other public assistance and 
So it strains the entire web of society, uh, you know, from top to bottom. And did you find that the work was kind of like eight to six, five days a week? Was it, would you work on weekends? Like what was the, what was the workload like? Most of the time, the vast majority of the time was, was eight to five. Um, if you had a trial coming up, then it would involve a weekend. Sometimes I took work home to do some case review or whatnot, but it was mostly an eight to five job. It paid like an eight to five job too, uh, in terms, you know, you have a set salary and whatnot. The biggest thing that those jobs do are give lawyers experience in the courtroom as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, I, I never, you know, one of the things that you learn through the years is that you never really become a true believer of, uh, if you're doing law right, then it's really hard to be a, an absolute, you know, gung-ho, true believer in this and that. Uh, now, there are many of those out there, whether they be insurance defense lawyers, plaintiff's lawyers, prosecutors, criminal defense lawyers, whatever the case is. There's a lot of those true believers out there, but it's just, you know, I, I, I spent an awful lot of time making myself sick, taking problems home with me. Yeah. Uh, so I tend to leave my work on my desk whenever I leave out of here. Yeah. That's a, and that's a, ba- that's a difficult balance to strike sometimes. Very much so. It's, uh, uh, it's vitally important that a person remain healthy mentally, physically, and spiritually. Uh, and that means just not, you know, sitting on your desk and stuff. You get out and exercise and take care of yourself. You yeah. Know? And asking for help. Absolutely. Now, there's, uh, there's a ton of resources for people at the undergraduate level. There's a ton of resources for people at the law school level, but also yeah. there's a lot of help at the bar. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it takes a very strong person to ask for help. It's not a yeah. sign of weakness. Yeah, my absolutely. Imagination. So, yeah, it wasn't until I was able to ask for help that I was able to uh, sort of get the help that I need in order to get back on track. Yeah. So. Well, tell us, tell us about the transition then to working on the other side of the fence as a defense attorney. How, how does the work differ? <coughs> um, do, you, do you generally record your time in, to bill clients? Is it fixed fee as opposed to a DA's office where you're not charging someone for that service? You're doing it on behalf of the state? Uh, it's a little different. Well, first of all, you're on the other side of the fence and you don't, you know, it's not this person did what, it's you did what. <laughs> <laughs> uh so in that regard yeah but you you know you're familiar with the system and the outline and the in the rubric and stuff like that so you know where this case is going to fit in and, and you know I haven't had the experience as a prosecutor I know what prosecutors are going to look at and what what what's going to be important to them and what's not going to be important to them as far as like billing and stuff like that my firm works a little bit differently um uh, we probably have 80 lawyers across the state in this firm. We're in 18 cities, mm-hmm. uh, plus a few other states. Uh, so we do a flat fee charge, and uh, we'll do a payment plan, so to speak. So I don't worry about billing hours or anything like that. I'm paid a salary and benefits. You just work the cases that come across. I just desk. work the case. I sign the cases up and work the cases that come across my desk and. Uh, 
Uh, I've got five lawyers underneath me right now, so I'll sign them up and then determine which of those lawyers are going to take a particular case, depending on their strengths, strengths and weaknesses and sides of their own personal docket. Um, it's a, and admittedly, that's a very different setup uh, from most law offices. It's a very business-oriented setup, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a very good setup. It's not one I would have ever employed myself had I opened up my own shop again. Uh, But looking back, if I had my own shop, I'd be a fool not to do it this way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a Cadillac. I'm very pleased with the present job. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you didn't. Not at all. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I know, uh, certainly when I was in law school, I had, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd be at a party and someone would ask you what you're doing. And then you'd say, oh, I'm in law school. And the immediate assumption was, well, you're just there to get these people off. You know, you're there, you're there to get these guilty people, you know, back on yeah. the street. And I get that still. Yeah. And, and, and I know undergrads wrestle with that when they think about criminal defense work. Tell us a little bit about how you deal with those kind of questions of, well, how, what are you doing representing these people? And, and some of the moral thing, moral um, problems that some people who might otherwise not want to do criminal law might have? Well, there's two parts to that. Number one, I think oftentimes lawyers forget that we have two titles, attorney and counselor. Mm-hmm. And uh, using that counselor part, uh, lawyer counseling skills are very, very important when it comes to dealing with some of my clients. Like I said, experiencing the worst thing in their life or uh, you know, or the, you know, the worst thing in their life at that particular moment in time, because they've got nine other ones before this and they're bound to have some more in front of them. Um, I will say this, 98% of my clients are better people than my best friends. We <laughs> just screwed up, you know, <laughs> and there's a difference between a predator and a screw up. And, uh, in that regard, uh, it is being able to remind yourself, even, but this is true for all clients, that we're not always – our job is to make sure that the state follows its own rules. If you're going to take somebody's constitutional rights away, and one of those rights is a liberty interest, their freedom, then you're going to follow your own rules. Okay, and those are due process, both substantive uh, due process and other procedural due process. Uh, You're going to I'm going to make you meet your own burden of proof in this particular case. And that's beyond a reasonable doubt on each and every element of the case. And if the state can't do that, it's not because I got this person off. It's because the state didn't have the facts necessary in order to meet their own burden. Okay. Now, if we weren't there, if criminal defense lawyers were not there to enforce or force the state to meet their own burden, they wouldn't worry about it. They're not going to self-police themselves in order to do that. Uh, It is up to us to say, no, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it right. And you're going to follow the law on this. And that's all a criminal defense lawyer does. Now, whether or not this person is a bad person or a good person or whatnot, that's not my call. Of course, there are some people that are bad people. 
there are some awfully, awfully good people that get caught up in very bad circumstances as well. But those people I find who are critical of what I do in real life, you, for them, the Bill of Rights is probably about the size of a postage stamp until they or one of their loved ones get in trouble and all of a sudden it blows up to the size of a billboard, mm. you know. Uh, and they're going to want the same zealous representation uh, out of me that I give everybody else. I can absolutely assure you of that. Uh, so uh, I try to remind them of that, that even though you haven't been in trouble or somebody you love hasn't been in trouble, you know, one day you could. Yeah. And, you could, but through no fault of your own, you know, and you're going to want me to do exactly the things I do for everybody who walks through that door. And you're going to be grateful for that uh, as well. <laughs> so uh, it's reminding them that, you know, I'm, it's not a game. We're not here to, quote, get people off and put them back on the street. Uh, I can't control another person's behavior. Nobody can whether or not a person does something else is entirely, you know, it could be the result of a disease, but people are going to do what people are going to do. And uh, it's my job as much as anything else to protect, to, to live up to my oath as a lawyer and to protect not only my client's rights, but society's uh, contract as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for giving us that explanation. Cause I think a lot of people, certainly in the freshman law course, that I teach, we, we kind of wrestle with how do you represent people who at first glance might look like terrible people, but you really have to dig deeper than that and, and understand the reason why there are these processes in place and, 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 and why people are, irrespective of what has happened, entitled to an adequate defense. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, you know, it, it, make no mistake, though. I <laughs> I have, and I will always have in my career, cases that truly bother me. Yeah. You know, uh, that's just the nature of being human, I think. Uh, and if you aren't bothered by some situations, then... Uh, There's a bigger problem. Yeah, you go look in the mirror, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, what advice would you have for maybe some of our listeners who have had their interest piqued by what you've had to say and would like to find out a little bit more about what it's like to be um, a practitioner of criminal law, whatever side of the fence that might be, what, what advice would you have for them to find out some more? Go talk to as many lawyers as you possibly can, uh, whether it be family, friends, general strangers, people that you know have good reputations either here or where you grew up. Uh, I don't know of any lawyer who wouldn't take the time uh, to sit down and talk with somebody. And you're going to hear a lot of, Hell, don't ever go to law school. It's the worst decision you can make if you want to make money, you know, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. To people like me, say, I absolutely love what I do. It's hard. It's difficult. But it is immensely rewarding. Uh, it is a badge of honor. You know, you, <laughs> I would hear about, oh, he's an old trial lawyer, you know, scum or stuff like that. Hell, trial lawyer is a badge of honor. <laughs> for me, you know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you'll hear all points in between. Uh, go watch some trials uh, and see it. It's not like anything you see on TV. That's for sure. There's and no open to the public. 
Yeah, open courts. Even, even today, with this virus provision we have, we have to do all of our hearings over Zoom, just like you and I are conducting this interview. Well, one of the things that uh, the Texas Constitution allows for is open courts. Anybody can go. And so even with today, with these Zoom hearings, every one of them are broadcast live on YouTube. Please, trials, the whole bit because of the open course premise. And that's how seriously we take it. You can go in and watch anything, any trial. So-and-so stole the $100. So-and-so killed 100 people. You know, all points in between. Mm-hmm. And make yourself available just out of curiosity. You know, you'll get a flavor of it after about two or three hours. Uh, it's a much slower process than you see on TV. There aren't going to be any matlock moments. And uh, you'll see the way things are done. And But that's only 1% of the work. 99% of the work is getting up to that trial. Uh, and that's where you go. If you can, get a clerkship somewhere. Um, you know, go. Just make yourself available. Uh, let curiosity take over and just go question people, talk to people. Uh, go to little cafes, you know, where lawyers hang out. And just, I'm thinking about doing this. You know, what's your experience? Uh, and they'll have, I mean, for God's sakes, man, who doesn't like to talk about themselves? Yeah, and, and I know a lot of people are intimidated by it in, in terms of starting those conversations. But like you said, Lawyers have a very strong tradition of giving back. Right. You know, we're always, as a legal community, we're always looking (coughs) to uh, have as many good people uh, in our community as we possibly can. And uh, we're always going to have that. It's not, you know, we're looking, we want it, but we're always going to need it. Yeah. And uh, having that need met. Uh, through people that come through uh, your program uh, is essential to, you know, and it's even more true nowadays. Uh, it's essential to having a strong bar, uh, whether it be state bar to Texas, local bar, whatever the case is. Yeah. Well, Darren, thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with us today and to share with us a little bit about your own journey in the law and your practice of, in particular, criminal law. Um, If you've got more questions about the law, the legal profession, um, or you'd like a particular area of law um, featured here on the podcast, please do reach out to us at prelaw.baylor.edu or you can contact my office directly on 254-262-6383. Darren, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Ben. And I'll say this before we end. I'm certainly one of those lawyers that has an open door uh, and will be happy to visit with any of your uh, students. Uh, All they would have to do is contact you and you can make arrangements or the introduction. Absolutely. uh, I will take all the time that I need to meet and talk and visit with anybody uh, who's interested. That's wonderfully kind. And and if you do want to take Darren up on that, please reach out to me and we we can make that happen. Darren, thanks again for your time and thanks for being a guest here on Bears the Bar and Beyond. Ben, I'm very happy to do it and uh, hopefully one day we can do it again soon. Absolutely. Thank you.